Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 11 is where we continue on this evening. Moses, in the midst of this second of a series of sermons, speaking to the children of Israel, is at this point sort of pointing them uh, to the very reality of how so much of what they have experienced has been about the tremendous grace of God in their lives, how he was the one who was worthy of their praise because of the great things that he had done for them. In fact, he said at the end of chapter 10 there, how he is your praise who's done these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen and referred to how even just their going uh, out of Egypt uh, being such a great multitude by this point, how they had went down to Egypt with just 70 or so persons and yet now like the stars of the heavens, God had multiplied them. He had blessed them over and over again in so many ways. And, and as we began chapter 11 last week together where we left off, we went down as far as verse 12 or so. There was just that repeated emphasis that God was telling the people people that he would hold them to account because of the many great things that their eyes had seen and again even as Jesus would articulate in the New Testament to whom you know uh, much who's received much they'll be expected the more and they had seen God's miracles they had seen God's faithfulness they had seen the many ways that God had worked on their behalf there was that repeated emphasis what he did what he did and and just the continual examples of the many things that he had done for them in their lives and uh, how as a result of that there should therefore be that response of loving obedience back towards him as the result of that very thing and talking about how the land they were going to go in was going to be different than things were in Egypt where they had to water and irrigate the land by the foot pump and how it was about their human effort to sustain themselves and survive and as we left off last time Moses was saying to them that the Lord wanted them to realize that the land they were about to go in the land of promise was not going to be like the land that they had been in before it was going to be completely different it was going to be a land that was characterized by the things that God would do how the land would be watered from the rain from heaven and how God would cause the land to be fruitful and fertile and how there was going to be this transition of going from a past experience where they had to strive and do it themselves and they were under the, in a sense, effort and human achievement experience and God is saying, but the land you're going to now, it's going to be a different experience. Uh, it's all going to be about what God is going to do and he's going to bring the rain and bless the land and cause it to be fertile and prosperous and how this transition was going to happen and we talked again how that is a depiction of really the difference of what God intends when we truly begin to walk in an experience the spirit-filled life that we go into the promised life of the spirit as they would go into the promised land that they were inheriting that God does not want our spiritual life or even our life period to be characterized as it was when we used to live in Egypt before we knew the Lord or even trying to regress back to the ways of Egypt to live out our Christian experience now thinking that it's about our effort and we're under the you know the servitude of slavery and bondage and we have to work and strive to have it a successful fruitful Christian experience but God is saying well, I don't want you to strive and strain I want you to inherit and I want you to trust me and depend upon me to bless and to, to water your fields and to bring about fruitfulness from your life. So we pick it up there in verse 13 with that backdrop as Moses goes on speaking on the Lord's behalf. He says there, chapter 11, verse 13, and it shall be 
that if you earnestly obey my commandments, God says, which I command you today, again, what were they? So often so simple, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you, God says, the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil, and I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. So again, just another reiteration of this call of God upon them, God telling them that what he wants from them more than anything is just the sincerity of their hearts that they would be devoted to him he says that if you will obey my commands and and what does god mean by that well it's there in verse 13 to just love the lord to just love the lord and to serve him with all of our heart and all of our soul the idea is just you know a dedicated life to the lord he just wants us in a relational way to be dedicated to him in the way that we would potentially fall in love with someone romantically to love our spouse or you know the love between a parent and a child that we would just love the lord ultimately jesus uh, brings these truths from the old testament as he simplifies it all the way down as he's approached in the time of his life on earth when they asked him what is the greatest commandment and what does jesus do he summarizes much of these things that we read here in deuteronomy to love the lord your god with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And again, that that's su- supreme, if you would, command or desire of God is he just says, just love me. Just love me. I think it was Augustine that was asked, and I could be wrong in the great theologian of all, but I'm pretty sure it was Augustine. I read it one time before. Someone asked him, how do you discern the will of God? And he answered this very simply. He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then do whatever you want. And I thought, that's good. You know, because oftentimes as Christians, don't we... I wonder what God's will is. Oh, I wonder what God's will is. I wonder what God's will is. I wonder what God... I mean, I mean, w- w- Christians are almost, you know, fanatical with that sometimes. I mean, we almost, you know, like, you know, uh, you know obsess over being so concerned about the will of God that sometimes as Christians we don't even do anything we, you know we become in the paralysis of analysis and we just go on and on and we you know never do anything we never act we never step forward and, and we I think sometimes almost to an extreme I understand it's from a good heart we now want to obey the Lord and we we want to do the will of the, but I think sometimes we almost complicate it beyond what it's supposed to be uh, I mean look I, I have children I'm a, I'm a father I, I love them we have a love relationship a healthy relationship uh, my kids don't sit on the couch paralyzed in fear and do nothing all day saying I wonder what dad's will is I wonder what dad's will is I wonder what dad's will is if I get off the couch what if that's not dad's will if I go get potato chips maybe he wanted me to eat pretzels I don't know I wonder what dad's will is they just they live in this comfort of the awareness of this love relationship that we have and there's also this genuine yeah i may ask dad's counsel and understand you know the role but there's also this awareness too that he wants me to enjoy my life and if i step out of bounds he'll let me know and i do <laughs> as a faithful father and and i'll put my little hand on their head and readjust the courses as needed you know that's a part of the parental process but uh, again i just think this is so beautiful how again 
Here we see God in the heart of God. He's just, just love the Lord and serve him. Just love him and serve him. And, and from that, that, that will bring about, even in the spirit-filled life, really what God intends in the life that's supposed to be spiritual. I think sometimes we can complicate it way more than we lead to. And here God says, as you go into the land, just obey me by loving me and serving me with all of your being. And God says, that will bring the blessed life, he's telling Israel, in that land. He says, I'll give you the rain for the land in its season. And again, that's how God does things, in season. There's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. Uh, and, and God brings about what's needed in due season, in its season. God says, don't worry. I know you're going to need rain for the land. You don't have to go and get a foot pump and do irrigation like you did in Egypt. But what does God want by saying, I'll give you the rain? God says, I just want you to be dependent upon me. I want you to look to me. I want you to love me and serve me and believe in season I will supply what you need. I will give the land, the rain he mentions here, the early rain and the latter rain, the fall rains and the spring rains. And God says, I know that the land needs rain to be fruitful and to produce. And God says, in the season that it's needed, I'll do my job and make sure that you have what you need. What God wanted them was to just live dependently. To just believe that God was going to bring the rains and not to say, oh, we better get the irrigation pump system going again. But God said, no, I'll bring the rains, the former rains, the latter rains to soften the ground that he says you may gather in your grain, your new wine, your oil. Again, all these things that they needed, the staples of life. And again, wine and oil, even the aspects, they weren't just staples. They were things of pleasantness, of enjoyment. Uh, that God would even bring enjoyment and pleasure into their lives as well. He even says, verse 15, and I'll send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. So again, even promising that he would supply what's necessary so that their herds and their flocks would be healthy, that their animals would grow so that they could feed off of them as needed, even as they at times would slaughter animals for food or have healthy animals for milk and for other things as well. So God says, I will provide those things. His caution, verse 16, as we always all need to be cautioned, he says, take heed to yourselves, however. So here's God's warning. Beware, that's the idea of take heed. And notice, take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived. Really great terms there. Maybe terms worthy of underlining in your Bible and maybe the person's next to you if they're not paying attention because those are key words there for all of us. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and then as a result, notice, he have to shut off the blessing that he wants to bring to get our attention again, to get Israel's attention again, have to shut the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. So again, it, it, God's warning the Jews here, look, make sure your heart stays in the right place that you don't fall into idolatry and turn away from me and become self-deceived in a way whereby as the result of that, you provoke the anger of the Lord and what he needs to do to get your attention to bring you to repentance is to then shut off the heavens and the rain won't come and the famine will come instead and the struggle and the undue difficulty, which is just a part of the natural consequences and the discipline of the Lord coming into their life to awaken them 
that they're not in the right place. And so at times God would do that. God would control nature and their crops and the rains. And he would at times warn that he would shut up the heavens to cause them to come to a place of awareness that they weren't right with God and they needed to get right with God. And sometimes, you know, symbolically, the Lord in some ways works like that in my life, I find at times, in your life. That sometimes it seems, well, it seems like things are kind of drying up a little bit. Seems like things are getting a little difficult or challenging. And again, I'm not trying to say that we, you know, build a formula into that. And therefore, if you're going through a hard time or, you know, a famine or a drought or a difficulty, if you would, in your life, that necessarily means that you for certain have done something wrong. But I'll tell you, when I go through those times, I always do check in. Because I realize that, you know, there are different times that storms can come. In the New Testament, some storms came as, you know, the result of Jesus sending them into the storm. And that was just the Lord. It didn't do anything wrong, but the storm was, in a sense, orchestrated by the Lord for some benefit in their life. Jonah, however, created his own storm. Would you agree? Jonah was a self-inflicted storm and a self-inflicted trial. So I think we need to realize that there are times that you know we need to be sensitive to this. And there are occasions where the Lord, in a sense, makes the heavens become like brass and shuts off the necessary reins, if you would, to get the attention of his people. And this was, of course, for Israel nationally. And you know what? I don't think God's changed much. I think God has the full prerogative to say, look, if a nation wants to dishonor me and turn away from me and not depend upon me, uh, I can shut off its prosperity really quick if I want to. And where before it was blessed and flourishing and prospering and successful, God says, I have no problem. I, you know, I can dry up the economy. I can do whatever. I, and that's what this would be for them. I can make it get hard real quick to all of a sudden get the attention of a people if they've turned away from me. And God gives this caution to Israel and uh, certainly something that would ultimately happen. Again, think of the days of the ministry of Elijah. This is why Elijah so boldly came it says to the king and all of a sudden Elijah the Tisbite, you know, shows up on the scene, First Kings 17, and comes out of nowhere and says, at my word, there's going to be no more rain ever again until I say so. And then he just walks back out, if you would, of the palace or White House of that day and just goes and wanders off into the wilderness. A one word sermon. And we know that for years it didn't rain. How would somebody like Elijah have such boldness to have such confidence to say, listen, at my word, it's not going to rain. I mean, that's a pretty bold prophecy and God honored it and it came to pass. Well, very simple. Uh, apparently, he knew the word of God and he knew the covenants and the promises that God had made both this way and that way that if you're obedient and love me and serve me, I'll bring the rains and you'll flourish and you'll prosper and you'll experience my blessing. But he also knew that God said, but if you turn away from me and worship other gods and you begin to forsake me, then I also promise that I'll shut up the heavens and I'll hold back the rains so that you'll experience the difficulty where there will be no rain and the land won't yield its produce and you'll begin to realize that you're not in right relationship with God. So because of that, Elijah was able to speak forth with that kind of confidence because he understood just what the word of God was and he believed God's word was honored on both sides, both the positive and the negative. He believed the truths of the promise of God's word. But again, not that I want to gloss over it because I mentioned it a moment ago, but again, verse 16, that statement there, take heed to yourselves lest your heart be deceived. That would be the beginning of the whole downslide. Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived. 
Listen, we need to realize that self-deception is a very real possibility for any of us. Jeremiah, ultimately speaking of the heart, says in chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and who can know it? In other words, we can't even know our own hearts. You know, there's a very dangerous thing sometimes even among Christians and, you know, people of God where we say, I'm just, you know, I just, I really sense, I really sense that God's putting this on my heart. It could be. But by the same token, we also need to realize the potential condition of our heart and really make sure we're not just trivially saying, well, well, this is on my heart to do. Or, 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 or I think God's spoken to my heart or, you know, or I'm just, the world, of course, says, well, just, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. The Bible doesn't say follow your heart. The Bible says guide your heart in the book of Proverbs. Don't follow your heart. <laughs> you follow your heart. It is deceitful above everything else. And like we sing that song, my heart deceives me. My feelings lie. They're always drifting like an ocean tide. Our heart by nature is innately sinful and wicked and deceptive. And we can become, the Bible cautions, this is just one of many places, search the scriptures, we can become self-deceived. And so here, this is the warning. Be careful, he says, of the downward slide because it happens when your own heart is deceived. It's not just being careful. Other people don't deceive us. We can deceive ourselves and live in a self-deceived mentality as we you know, have a conscience that becomes numb to the truth. And, and if you continue to suppress and suppress and suppress, sin is a deceptive thing. And all of a sudden, your conscience becomes, what the Bible says, seared. And you have a seared conscience. And, and it's amazing what we can convince ourselves of. And it's a, it's a very dangerous place. So we always have to be open to this. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, I don't even know myself. But please, I want to be careful, Lord. If my heart is deceived, please awaken me so that I don't end up down the path where I turn. Because what happens when your heart is deceived, verse 16, that's when you turn aside and you serve other things. And you begin to get involved in unhealthy things that become destructive and bring about the anger and in many ways the suffering unnecessarily that comes as attachment to that. Verse 18, he says, Therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine, God says, in your heart. Again, how do you protect against self-deception? I don't want to enter into self-deception. Well, God says, I don't want you to either. So here's some advice, God says. Lay up these words of mine. Notice, not in your head, in your heart. Because what did he just say, verse 16? Lest your heart be deceived. It's a heart matter. The psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is not just an intellectual thing. Because again, you know, the heart can make a convert of the mind. You know, I've talked to certain individuals who can probably quote the Bible better than me, backwards, forwards, upside down, this and that, and they can be living cuckoo machu. And, and, and I, I use that because that's the best word I can come up with. And yet, you know, they can say all the right things, quote the right things, utilize, because this is not a head issue. It's a heart issue. And that's why God says, hide my word in your heart, that it would govern over the heart, the central part of our being. He says, 
lay up these words of mine in your heart. Again, I want to encourage you, when you read the Bible, yes, I understand we intellectually, we love God with our mind. We intellectually use our minds to reason and think about the Bible. But I want to encourage you more than anything else. You know, I don't care if you don't become a student of the word where you know, you're really good intellectually with your grasp on scripture. Some people are just like that more than others. But read your Bible with, with a heart knowledge. Read it with your heart. Read it in the present tense. That as you read the Bible, yes, I love doctrine. I love to understand things. But I would rather you read your Bible. You know, my, my uh, children write uh, devotions. I've taught them as far as having their devotions to read a section of Scripture and then maybe just find one verse where it just kind of really speaks to them something and then just write and I, I read their you know devotional journal sometimes and, and I, I'm, I'm like baffled sometimes you know what God is able to say to them and sometimes I mean, it's be very realistic or sometimes they'll even write something in regards to a, a, a phrase out of reading 10 or 12 verses and what they write may not even be theologically and contextually what the passage per se was even really about but what they write from their heart of what God said to them out of that one phrase is totally theologically sound. And it's just an evidence that God is speaking to them. And quite honestly, I'll take that any day because I know what's happening there is that even as a young teenager, the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to their heart because a living and active word of God is speaking something to them. And they're having an open heart to hear it. And I don't know about you, I don't need a whole chapter of the Bible to hear God speak to me. God can speak to me in a verse. I found sometimes God can speak to me in two, three words sometimes in a way that he just says something to my heart that I needed to hear, whether it's a reproof or a correction or you know, just a confirmation about something. So again, I just want to emphasize in light of the text and where we're at here, lay up the word of God, he says to the Jews here, in your heart. And we need to do that too. In your soul, again, the depths of your being. And bind them, that is the commands, the words of God, on as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets, the ideas between your eyes. Now, we saw some of this, again, it's being reiterated, back in chapter 6, where God told them to do this, when he gave the great Shema, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And God back there told them to do this exact same thing. Moses is being repetitious again reminding them now again the jews we know even to this day many take this very literally and they literally have made little boxes with that particular scripture from deuteronomy 6 and others in it and they actually with leather straps bind it to their hand and they'll wear it around with a little box if you ever seen an orthodox jew you know they'll write on their forehead or whatever jesus referred to them as phylacteries um, you know, in the New Testament because they would wear them and he cautioned them about making their phylacteries larger and larger to appear more spiritual. The idea was, you know, well, you know, I mean, poor John, he only has three scriptures in his phylactery, but I got a U-Haul box, you know, on my head because I got 33 scriptures in my phylactery here, so I look way more. And again, they began to just sh to show that they were they were not grasping the heart behind what God wanted here. Again, it is interesting, grasping the heart behind it. I don't think literally that God was that concerned they actually bind the word of God on their head and on their wrists. It could be possible that was one component as a reminder. And I don't think that's a bad idea if it was a mental reminder to them that they were a people whose minds were to be governed by the word. They were a people who were to look at things 
through the word of God as it was in front of their eyes, that they were to look at things through scripture, I think, you know, or, or that their hands, you know, that what they do should be governed by what the word of God says. And what they don't put their hands in or they do put their hand to should be directed by the word of God. I think it was more of the, the, the symbolic concept behind it because God says at the beginning of the verse, lay up these things in your heart and your soul. It's the inner person God was concerned about. But they took these things very literally. So God says, do you want to keep yourself and your heart from being deceived to take heed? Well, first of all, he says, let the word of God be the strongest governing influence over anything else in your life. Let it govern as the authority over your life, your heart, your soul. Look at it, everything through the word of God. And once God's word governs you, he says the other way that it will help the whole nation to keep from being deceived and turning aside to idolatry and worshiping and serving other things. He says it also needs to be conveyed from one generation to another amidst the family. And again, he goes on here, verse 19, to say, and you shall then teach them, that is again, the word of God, the commands of God, you shall teach them to your children, speaking of them. When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Now, take notice, if you've been with us studying through the book of Deuteronomy, that's the third time that this same instruction has come to pass. In chapter four, they were instructed to teach their children the word of God. In chapter 6, they were told the exact same thing again. And now here again in chapter 11, again, in this book of obedience, in this book about the theme of the word of God, what's best for a nation, what is best you know, for, for stability in life. This is the third time God has directly now given this instruction, this exhortation to parents of their responsibility to teach and to train their children in the ways of the Lord. And again, in the same way that we see it a third time, again, not that there's anything wrong with an intentional, uh, you know, structured way to go about that. I think it's wonderful if you can, you know, you know, have a time where maybe you do a devotion or a Bible study or something. That's that's wonderful. I think as you go through the seasons of life, you got to kind of figure out how that works best with the season the family's in, the age of the kids and all that kind of stuff. But when God references parents teaching their children the word of God and the ways of God, he speaks of it on all three of these occasions in just a very informal kind of conversational relational way. He just says, as you sit in your house at dinner, on the couch, hanging out on, on their bed together, talking to them at night maybe or something, bugging them when they want to do something else, you know, that works. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, the idea is just all throughout the day. As you're going here and going there, that you just look for constant opportunities to always bring up God and to explain, you know, when a situation happens as you're walking through life or as you're sitting at the dinner table and sharing that as something comes up and just, well, you know, here's what the Bible says in regards to something like that. Or you just look for teaching opportunities in a relational, natural way, because more often than not, things are caught more than they're taught and they're absorbed through that reality or just as you live out your life and they watch how you walk and how you handle something, that many times becomes the platform where genuine teaching is absorbed because kids pick up hypocrisy real quick. And if what you do is the opposite, you're really structured, like you're gonna sit down and have Bible time and then you live like a hypocrite in front of them. <laughs> 
forget the Bible time. You know, in fact, all you did there was just cause way more confusion because they think it's just an intellectual thing. You know, we go to church, then we do the Bible time. But, but it's not real to them. But when they see you living it out, walking it out, you want to talk about God at the dinner table when the occasion's right and as something comes up and you say, well, look, you know, let's talk about that. How would God have us handle that as Christians different than maybe kids in school handle that or how the world's, what's God's word say about that? And you just, as you're driving in the car, eating dinner, looking for those opportunities, those are great, great ways to convey a godly influence and to give that teaching instruction to our children, and those kind of things make a huge, huge difference uh, in the long run. I remember years ago when I went on the very first mission trip that I did to Ireland uh, when I was pastor in Calvary Chapel, York, with another church, and at that time, the church we went with, they probably had half a dozen or so teenage kids, like junior high, high school age kids. And, you know, I, I'm a morning devotions person, get up early in the morning, um, and, and I got up in the morning, and I was, like, convicted. I got up in the morning, and these teenage kids were, like, already up, praying, reading their Bibles, and I'm like, dang, man, I was kind of feeling a little convicted, you know, I'm thinking, I'm like a sloth or something. I, I was, wasn't up that late or whatever, and, and, I'm, and, and so I was just really impressed with the godliness of this. So at that time, our girls are way younger, so I was, I mean, I was, I was like, I just started talking to these kids. It's like, can you tell me something? I said, you know, what has really been the real, you know, pivotal thing in your life? You seem to really have a strong walk with the Lord. I mean, and I just, I was very curious, like, you know, what it is, because I realize not all teenagers are there. A lot of teenagers are, you know, very apathetic. They're just, you know, they'll come to church because they have to come to church. Or, but you know, the, it just there's an apathy, just kind of like, whatever, gosh, you know, I can't wait to get out of here and back on Twitter or something. You know, it just and it's a lot of times that's the case, and and there's a lot of pull upon them, and there's. And I mean, these kids were really on fire for the Lord. They loved the Lord. They were up reading their Bible. I mean, they were, you know, watching a minister when we were doing things. So I asked them, I was like, you know, what, what is it? I mean, do your parents like have a perfect devotional system? I like wanted to get the, the scoop on that. And they said, here, amazing. They said, here's the difference. What we've seen, because they said, we have lots of kids in our youth group. And they said, what we've seen, I was talking to two or three of them. Our observation is this is those of us who seem to have really strong relationships with the Lord have parents who just faithfully, consistently love Jesus and walk with Him and just live out their Christian life. And we see other kids who have struggled and stumbled, and a lot of times we see in those situations there are parents who profess one thing and do the opposite, and there's inconsistency, and there's confusion, or, or there's inconsistency between the parents, and therefore the kids say, oh, I can be that kind of a Christian, or I can be that kind of a Christian. And the flesh naturally gravitates towards what? I, I, I'll be that kind of a Christian, because if I can still be a Christian, be that kind of a Christian. So, again, it wasn't this structure thing, it was just a genuine walking with the Lord, loving the Lord, that these kids saw it and they recognized the sincerity of it, the reality of it. And I just say that again, as a parent, take off the pressure. Take off the pressure. You don't need to buy the 17 books about what's the perfect way to have family devotions and all that kind of jazz. Look, just love Jesus, walk with Jesus. And as you walk with Jesus, take your kids on the walk with you. Do you understand what I mean by that? Just take them on the walk with you. 
and encourage other people about that. Encourage young parents in regards to that. That's the way. Speaking, he says, when you sit in your house, walk by the way, lying down, riding in the car, great opportunities. And he says, and write as well the word of God he told them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Again, doing what? So that the word of God was always in front of them as they'd walk through the gates as they would walk throughout their house on the doorpost, scriptures inscribed. I think that's a beautiful thing, just always seeing the Word of God. It's around. Uh, it's evident, you know, being able to recognize the Word of God, just keeping at the forefront of their attention. He says, verse 21, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land which the Lord your God swore to your fathers to give them like the days of the heavens above the earth. So again, the blessing that would come upon a family, a nation that loves the word of God and therefore lives it out because it rules as the governing influence more than anything else in their life. Verse 22, for if you carefully keep, God says, all these commandments, which I command you to do. Again, what is it? Does God have a new idea? Doesn't seem like it. Again, look at it. To love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to hold fast to him again the person of the Lord then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves so the idea is God says look if you love me and you obey me he begins to speak some of the benefits of a life of love for God and a life of obedience to God and to his word and one of it God says to Israel is you'll be undefeatable you will have victory and success and you will conquer things that are stronger and mightier than you personally because God says there, I'll drive out the destructive influences that would hurt and harm you. And again, look, God says, I'm the one that will drive those things. God loves to bless our lives. And the, and the more we put ourselves in a position where he doesn't have to withhold our blessing, his blessing, excuse me, from us, the better for us. So God says to Israel, look, as you just love me and walk in my ways and hold fast to me, he says, I'll drive out your enemies before you. I'll dispossess greater and mightier nations. I'll, I'll take care of things that seem that you could not conquer on your own. God says, I'll conquer them for you. I'll drive those things out and not let them overcome you or harm you. I'll, I'll come to your aid. Verse 24, in every place he promises Israel on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Boy, that's an encouraging confidence for them. And then he says, from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river Euphrates, even to the western sea shall be your territory. No man, God says, verse 25, shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. So God promises a huge expanse of territory. If you really look at that geographically, Israel actually, under the conquest of what's described there, probably conquered about 10% of that territory, of what could have been what God wanted to give to them. Again, do you see the goodness of God, what he wanted for them? God wanted for them so much more than they ever even experienced. So much more land and territory than is God saying here, look, go and take possession. I want you to experience my best. I, I want to give so much to you. And yet they experience so little of all of what God wanted for them. And I can't help but to think how in many ways that is a description sometimes of our lives. I think that there are times in our lives when God wants so much more for us. 
in many different areas. He wants more for us spiritually. He wants more for us maybe you know, personally. Or so, and, and, and yet we never fully experience all that God has for us because we don't walk in faith. We don't believe the goodness of God. We don't pursue perhaps all that he intends for us in the spiritual life for different reasons. And, and, and such a sad thing to pass up and not experience all that God intends. God says, wherever you put the sole of your foot, he says, I want to give it to you. Verse 26, he then cautions them again. Behold, I said before you today, he says, a blessing and a curse. The blessing, take note, verse 27, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, he says, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known. Now it shall be, he says, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. He says, are they, that is those two mountains, not on the other side of the Jordan toward the setting of the sun in the land of the Canaanites, where they had not got to yet, who dwell in the plains opposite Gilgal beside the terebinth trees of Moray. So when we get to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, we'll get this same explanation more in depth there regarding the blessings and the curses and how ultimately God tells them to go on these two different mountains. And Joshua 8 is actually, it's not until then when they're in the land that they actually carry this out. And Joshua and some of the elders and leaders of the land stand in the middle in this valley and half the tribes are on each of these mountains and they call out these blessings and curses that if we do this, the blessing of God will be experienced. And if we disobey God, then let this curse come upon us for we've brought it upon ourselves in a sense by disregarding God's authority and best for us and turning away from him and ultimately it will be carried out there. But again here, verse 26 27 and 28 God again is beginning to bring them to this awareness preparing them as they go in wanting the best for them he says I set before you today a blessing and a curse in the words God saying how you choose is going to make a big difference I set before you a blessing and a curse he says a blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord if you obey my word you're going to experience my blessing God says and the same way he says, if you disregard my word, if you do not obey my spirit, he says, then you're going to bring a curse upon you. You're going to curse your own life. And again, that's the concept there. God says, you can control if you experience a blessed life or you curse and self-destruct your own life. And God says that the deciding factor is how we choose. It's whether we respond correctly to the Lord and what he wants for our lives. He says, verse 31, for you will cross over the Jordan and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you and you will possess it and dwell in it. Again, the confidence of the Lord. I love that. For you will cross over. That's, that's good encouragement. God says, you're crossing over. <laughs> I'm going to make sure that you cross. Maybe perhaps in some way you're wondering, well, am I going to make it to the other side? I don't know. I mean, there's something between me and the promised land. It's called the Jordan River. And then some, am I going to make it? And the Lord says, you're going to cross over. You're going to cross over to the other side. You're going to go in 
You're going to possess the land which the Lord is giving you and possess it and dwell in it. And he says, verse 32, however, your responsibility, he says, be careful. He told them to observe all the statutes and judgments which I set before you today. And these are the statutes, he says, and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days you live on the earth. You shall, here's his instruction, utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and the hills under the every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars and break their sacred pillars and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down, God says, the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. So again, as they went into the land and God said, when you go in, first order of business, God says, in order to be able to observe my judgments and my statutes, he says, you need to also eliminate the things that would pull you away from that. And so God says, as you go into the land, these are a pagan people. And they had all types of, you know, groves and altars and high places and various forms of worship that they were engaged in And the Lord gives them this command here in verse 2 and 3. Look at the language to utterly destroy every place where they could be pulled into something that would be idolatrous or away from their devotion to God. He tells them to utterly destroy everything that would lead them in any way to worship or to be devoted to or to serve something else which would pull their devotion away from the Lord. Now, again, pretty strong language there. Utterly destroy their altars, break their pillars, burn their wooden images with fire, cut down the car. I mean, it sounds like destruction and devastation there. But what God is reminding his people, Israel here of, is that may seem harsh and radical, but here's the bottom line. Sometimes that's necessary. When it comes to avoiding sin, when it comes to making sure that we leave no avenue to go into something that could easily pull us off track, we need to, knowing our own hearts, Israel needing to recognize the condition of their own propensity to get involved in what would be unhealthy and be drawn away, that they need to hear God say, look, you can't trust yourself. Oh, well, just leave the altar there. We'll never, we'll never try it. Just You can just leave the altar there. Leave that wooden image. I know it's perverse and it's erotic and gross, but we'll just never look at it. Just put a sheet over it. We'll never look at it. Uh-huh. Oh, just, you know, and God says, no, you need to radically destroy any opportunity and avenue for your heart to be inclined in its sinfulness to go get involved in things that are going to pull you away from me and destroy your relationship with me. And so he commands them. Yes, that's harsh. That's radical. But it would be helpful and it was necessary to protect them and to safeguard them in a way whereby they would not go and get engaged in those things. And you know what? Same for us. Listen, a part of the spiritual life is crucifying the flesh. It doesn't say, you know, make an agreement with your flesh. It doesn't say, you know, try and ignore your flesh. The Bible is pretty, you know, crucify the flesh, put it to death, Colossians 3 says. And, and you know, you almost have to do that every day. Because the weird thing is, is there's all kinds of sick and twisted things from our past lives and before we came to Christ and this and that, you know, and these little altars and all that kind of stuff that we've set up there. And we come to Christ and we think we're done with that. Boy, we say, hey, we'll go back and rebuild that altar real quick. 
you know, and, and, and we have to at times realize that there are areas of potential rebellion from the Lord or, or getting caught into things that we need to at times be, just be very radical and very severe with. You know, what did Jesus say? Remember what Jesus said? Who is God in flesh, love manifests. Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck the thing out. He says, your hand offend you, your arm offend you, cut it off. Wow, that's radical. But Jesus is saying it's better to cut off radically and, and even suffer loss and some pain if that's what you got to do to safeguard yourself so that your hand doesn't get involved in something or your eye doesn't get engaged in something that it shouldn't. So here God gives them this very strong instruction, but wise. Again, verse 4, how come? He says, because you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Again, God didn't want them to take the ways of the people of the land, pagan ideas, and incorporate their avenues of worship and say, yeah, okay, we'll take a little bit of what they do and we'll mix it with our worship of Jehovah God. You know, maybe there are maybe there are some good components from, you know, Molex worship and the the Asherah worship. I mean, we, I mean, I mean, maybe we can just add a little bit of that to our worship of Jehovah. And he says, don't do that. Don't worship the Lord with such things. But you shall seek, he says, and said, the place where the Lord your God chooses, out of all your tribes, to put his name for his dwelling place, and there. He says, you shall go there. You shall take your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and your heave offerings of your hand, all components of worship for them, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there at that place God chose, you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice in all which put your hand and your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So again, what God is going to deal with in chapter 12 here, and there's going to be this repeated emphasis, and, but he's going to emphasize here, look, you cannot worship me how you want to worship me. God's going to say to them, look, you can't take their ways and practices and incorporate them into your worship life. God is going to say to them repetitively, very strongly, very repetitiously in this chapter that they were to go, verse 5, he says there, to the place the Lord their God would choose for them to worship, to the one place. Now, initially, that was there in Shiloh where the tabernacle would be set up, but ultimately, that would be where? In Jerusalem, where the temple of God would ultimately be. And again, God's going to indicate in this chapter and in other places, it's not about the locality. For them, it was a place. For them, it was a location and a place where the temple of God was, where the presence of God was manifest. And that was where they were to go with their offerings, their tithes, their free will offerings, their vows. And God says, because I want you to worship the way I say I want to be worshipped. They were to worship God one way by going to one place. And that was important because, again, God wants to have us worship him in the way that he would have us to worship him because he's God and we're not. And this, of course, was just to begin to prepare them, even as a nation, for ultimately that it wouldn't be about a place, but it would be about a person, one person. Because ultimately Jesus would say what? I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And that ultimately there would be one way to worship God, which is through his son, Jesus Christ, by coming to him, that one that people can, oh, there's many roads that lead to God. And, and God said, no, there's not. There's one way. In the same way there was one place for them, 
There's one way for us, we understand, through the person, the, the temple of God, if you would, Jesus, the one who tabernacled among us, the very God in flesh, which is the way whereby we approach God, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So chapter 12 will deal with this emphasis, but if you would look with me there in verse 5, because I want to end on this thought as we go back into worship this evening. We're going to see this phrase repeated, and this is, again, I said earlier about, you know, you don't need sometimes a whole verse, but sometimes just a phrase. I, I love this phrase, and I found it repeated throughout this chapter, this is the Holy Spirit was driving it home maybe for us this evening. Those words there, the place, these four words, where the Lord your God chooses. Again, the difference being that they didn't choose where to go worship or how to worship, God chose. The Lord your God chooses. That shows up four or five times in this chapter. And it shows up in another few forms, but that specific four-word phrase, the Lord your God chooses. The Lord your God chooses. Listen, one of the biggest things that we need to come to a place of submission about in our lives as the people of God is we don't choose anymore. It's not my will, but your will be done. Lord, I don't want to choose anymore. I don't want to choose what I want. I don't want to choose how the way it's going to go. Lord, I want you to choose. You're my Lord. You're my God. I want what you choose for me. Lord, I come into that place where in an attitude of submission and worship, and maybe even tonight, that your heart would come to a place, whatever it is in your life, to say, Lord, I don't want what I want. I want what you want. I want you to choose. You choose how it's going to go, when it's going to happen, and whatever's going to unfold. I want what you choose for me. Amen? Let's stand. Let's